If you turn in, uh, in your bulletins to page 7, you can also turn in your Bibles, if you'd like, to the first uh, chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. But I have put all this out here um, just so you can have some quick reference to it. And also included in the Genesis reading is one uh, of Ephesians chapter 6, so can save your turning to that. In our series, we're in the section, we've talked about reaching up in worship, reaching in in fellowship, and now reaching out in ministry to this world. And today we're going to talk about what could be called faithful presence or even the beginning of talking about faithful presence in this world. And I'm going to begin by talking about work uh, itself. We don't think of work that much as outreach, but I hope we will change that uh, in some ways this morning and to see that our work is a vital aspect of who we are as human beings and that our work is a vital aspect of manifesting the glory of God in this world. Um, and to have a whole different view of both our work and the work of everybody else in this world. It's so important to have these perspectives as we think about how we're going to minister the gospel in the world. Um, so many things to avoid in the way Christians have gone about this in the past. And one is the way we devalue work and the way we divide work life into the sacred and the secular so that's why we're going to try to spend some time on that this morning. So from Genesis 1, after the whole account of creating the world, now we get to the apex of the creation. In one sense, the whole point, the final point of creation uh, to God's glory. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation." And then in verse 8 of that chapter, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And later, the Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last, this at last, this bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The real, I included the whole of the context, but one of the critical parts of this that we'll call attention to is the, the naming of the animals and the significance of this uh, that God uh, commanded him. And then in Ephesians 6, after speaking to husbands and wives and uh, children, he speaks to slaves. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand who we are as human beings, what you've given us to do, and how we may bring honor and glory to your name on this earth. Oh, Lord, bless us by the very Spirit that gave us this word, for we pray it for your glory and honor. Amen. You could say uh, in this account of Genesis, in the beginning was work. <laughs> in the beginning was work. Because everything that God did in chapter 1, the very opening chapter of the Bible, is described in Genesis 2 as work. This is unheard of that a God would be described as one who works. This is a laborer's work. This is artisan work, craftsmanship. This is the kind of word used there in chapter 2. It, in other places, describes leather work or a potter's work or work in the field or work in building the walls of Jerusalem uh, or the tabernacle or, and its furniture or the temple. Interestingly, in Many ancient religions, creation was the product of conflict. One account has the winning God using the remains of the defeated goddess as the, the uh, basic stuff to create the world with. But for the biblical account, it's not the result of conflict. It's the result of God going to work. And... It's first mention work, not as man that works, but God that works. It's even put in a six-day framework, which is purposely set forth to describe 
a guy going to work every day. It, the, the morning and the evening, uh, the evening and the morning ideas. He goes home, goes to bed, gets up in the morning, goes back to work. That's the feel of the language of chapter 1. Uh, so how could work have any greater, uh, any more exalted feature than this? How could it receive any more dignity than God himself is the worker? That's the very first thing we meet in Genesis 1. And then we see how he delighted in his work. He took satisfaction in his work. He said it is good. He contemplates his work. He enjoys his work in that way. And though he ceased from his work at creation, of creation, he never ceased from his work of providence, or we say providing for his creation, caring for his creation, uh, creation, sustaining his creation. We could talk so much about this in, in Scripture. Even in the second chapter, as we saw, it says that God planted a garden and he watered it. We see this in a psalm like uh, Psalm 104 that talks about how God waters the mountains and the plants and the animals and feeds them all. And the picture is that he hand feeds every single creature on earth. The great zoological keeper of, of all the creatures on earth. Uh, God hand feeding. It says of the lions, they seek their food from God. That's such a graphic picture, you know, as though the lions themselves were looking up to God. Well, what is it today? You know, I don't see any antelope. Where are they? You know, that kind of thing. This feel of, of the animals looking to God. And, uh, in all of this, we see that in the unimaginably difficult and complicated task of creating the universe and the world in particular and every moment engaging in the complex task of sustaining and providing for this world, infinite details that we cannot imagine that God is engaged in, we see in all of this, God is at work. That's who we, that's what we learn about this God. And He is a constant fountain of good. It says there in Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that He has made. The Lord is righteous in all of His ways and kind in all of His works. All of your works shall give thanks to you. That's what's happening right now. <laughs> that's what's going on at every moment of the day. So, first, God as worker. Secondly, man as worker in God's image, okay? If you read the first chapter and you see that it's described as work, one of the very things you would expect if man is made in God's image that he must work. That must be essential to who he is because that's who this God is. And that's what we see. A unique among all the animals there in chapter 1. We are addressed and given this specific task not only to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as the birds were given, for instance, but we're to subdue this earth and we're to have dominion over this earth. These, this could be translated to govern the earth and reign over the earth. These are royal words 
You are to be kind kings and queens of creation, doing good in this world even as God has done good and continues to do good. Now, a book that I'll quote a lot from this morning is Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, which I highly, highly recommend. If there's any of you here that work, <laughs> okay, I would include a lot of people, right? And, and you will probably work at some point in your life. It's just a, a wonderful book uh, that, that goes after the biblical teaching of work. This color says, as those made in his image were called to stand in for God in this world. See, standing in for God in this world. Exercising stewardship over the rest of creation in his place as vice regents. Right? On his behalf as representatives carrying out his will in this world, in our work. We share in doing the things that God has done in creation, bringing order out of chaos. And many of us have hit jobs that there was a lot of chaos and you have to bring order into that chaos. Creatively building a civilization out of the material of physical and human nature, caring for all that God has made. And Victor Hamilton in his commentary on Genesis points out that in surrounding cultures, the royalty, kings and those of royal blood, they were called image of God. But not a guy who's building canals and not a guy who's working in pottery and all that. But in Scripture, every single person is made royal image of God. That is incredible. It stands out in an incredible way outside of every culture so that, as uh, Hamilton says, he democratizes royalty, right? Royalty doesn't belong to the king. You all are kings and queens. And every job that you do is a job of a king and queen reflecting the glory and beauty of God in what you do. So work, as Keller says, has dignity because it is something that God does and because we do it in God's place as his representatives. Every kind of work has dignity. And especially we must recognize that God's own work is manual labor. Okay, not that he has hands, but it's described in terms of manual labor. Shaping the man from the dust. Literally, it says he builds the woman from the side of the man. How you could come up with something so beautiful from something so ugly, I don't know. But uh, that just shows how majestic he is. He plants the garden. And Philip Jensen points out that if the, if the Greeks, if, if God came into the world, the Greeks would expect him to be... Uh, a philosopher, right? A philosopher king. The Romans would expect him to be this noble and just statesman. But when he really does come into the world, he comes in as a carpenter. He comes in as a carpenter. And so we must see that every job is a work done by God for people, through people, to help human flourishing. Every job is plays this role. And it is a thoroughly Greek pagan notion that manual labor is a lower form of work. 
the uh, philosopher Adriano Tilgers has written this, to the Greeks, work was a curse and nothing else. Work was demeaning to the Greeks because they were looking forward to the day that they, they would die and they'd be liberated from the body. Death was a friend because they finally get out of this body. And the further you could get from bodily things, the less you could do bodily and the more you could use your mind and your mind alone, the better it was. That was a pagan view. And the point was to disconnect yourself from the body in higher thought and contemplation. And this same abomination is found in the value judgments of the knowledge classes in Western civilization against the service classes. Same looking down your nose at those who are involved in what would be considered lower things. And this is anti-Christian to the core. It is anti-God to the core. That does not say that every person in whatever way we should use our gifts to the fullest. But every single thing that every person does is contributing to the good of others. It's the means by which we love one another. And so you have to remember that God has the ultimate service job in this world. Service simply means serve. He serves every single human being in this world every day. He serves every living thing every single day. He serves every particle in the universe every day. He is the ultimate leader of all service on the planet. Not just... uh, announcing it to be done or commanding it to be done, but doing it. Uh, He's at work in every service job as well, taking care of the needs of people. There's there's the glory of God everywhere you look. And Keller, he mentions in this connection, uh, handymen, dry cleaners, cooks and gardeners, and the disdain that so many can have for them. And we should see in each of them and what they do, the glory of God, that they are serving us in some way, bringing God's love and care to us in some specific way. Every single person has that role before God. So, we cannot have the Greeks' view of this. And also, you would, uh, the Greeks had the idea that in creation, or, or in, the, in the golden age, the gods and, men, and human beings uh, had this age in which they didn't have to work at all. That was the golden age of no work. And... Uh, if we had time, we'd talk about how this was in the medieval uh, world, in the poetry of, of the medieval world, and even in the Big Rock Candy Mountain song, but we just don't have time for that. <clears throat> um, but you see, it says in Genesis that he placed man in the garden in paradise, in paradise to work it and keep it. In paradise, right? The Bible's vision of paradise includes work. So as Keller says, work did not come in after a golden age of leisure. It was part of God's perfect design for human life because we're made in God's image and part of his glory and happiness is that he works. You must work if you're to be engaged in the image of God, if you're to manifest the image of God. 
This is our calling. It's our glory. It's the beauty of what we are made to do uh, in the image of God. And so uh, work doesn't come into the picture after the fall of Adam and Eve, like the Greeks would say. And we can have that opinion. We can join the Greeks in that opinion when we start talking about work in bad ways. Of course, now we are engaged in work under sin, under curse, under brokenness. There's so many aspects of work that are frustrating and difficult and sometimes demeaning and abusive even. We're in a broken world, but work itself is a gift of God for those in the image of God. And so it's not that sin entered the world and then with it work. Work is not a part of the brokenness of this world. It was a part of the blessedness of paradise. We must teach that and live that out. It's really like one of our most basic needs like food and friendship and sleep. As Keller says, without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. People who are cut off from work because of physical or other reasons quickly discover how much they need work to thrive emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Dorothy Sayers writes this, What is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do, it is or it should be the full expression of the worker's faculties, the medium in which he offers himself to God. Is that what you think about your work? The medium in which I offer myself up to God. So the work of children at home, the work of the yard, the work of uh, preparing for a vacation, the work that makes your money Whatever it is, this is the medium in which I offer myself up to God. And when you think of that medium, you think work has many restrictions, but work is, in that sense, it's the restriction of like water to a dolphin. You you can read how often, sadly, dolphins sometimes beats themselves, right? You can see online whole like 30 uh, dolphins in a pod just suddenly beats themselves somewhere. And many times there are rescue efforts to get those dolphins back into the water. And, and I always love when I've fished, I haven't fished a whole lot, but sometimes the times I have fished and it's a, it's a catch and release and to see that, that fish dart off back into the water, you know, that freedom. Well, he's restricted to the water, but that's his freedom. And that's how we're to view our work. There are restrictions about, but, but we're made for this. We're made to flourish in it. We're made to be expansive as human beings in the midst of it, to discover much of who we are, to discover our gifts, to discover what it means to spend ourselves for the sake of other people, to see our work as a calling. And so uh, we have this same thing. We're to give ourselves up to God in this medium, our water, so to speak, that God has given us, and that is is work. Now, of course... Uh, we that doesn't mean that work becomes our idol because uh, leisure, we don't have time. To, we'll hopefully have some time later to talk about leisure. Um, but leisure has to be enjoyed as well in an active way of contemplating God's creation and actively drinking in the richness of God's creation and his culture 
to show that work is not our God, nor is leisure our God. God is our God, and we enjoy all things under this God, and, and He brings balance and uh, order to our lives as we give all parts of our life up to Him. But we often think that the real point of work is just to make a living so I can get to the real deal, which is be home with my family, be at church, be among friends. That is a pagan view of work at best. Okay? It's both and. Yes, friends. Yes, family. Yes, church. And yes, work. This is not the bad boy of your life, you know. The leftover part, the secular part, the part where, oh, I've got to put up with this. Yes, in a sense, sometimes you feel that way, of course, that I have to put up with it. It's so difficult because of the curse, because of sin. But work in itself, we must hold as a principle, as God declares it in Scripture, as who we are as human beings in God's image, that it is good. It is good. And we're defined the presence of God, know the presence of God in the midst of it. So, God is a worker. We made in God's image are workers. So, uh, workers in His image. Okay. And then I want to talk about two other, two other aspects of work. Uh, that is work as cultivation and work as service. And of course, up to now, we could kind of call this two the, the work as dignity, right? The dignity of work. That it's not demeaning, but it's part of our dignity as being made in the image of God. But work is uh, cultivation of His creation. As you see that we're to uh, subdue the earth and we're to rule it. And so as Keller says, though all God has made was good, it was still to a great degree undeveloped. God left creation with deep, untapped potential for cultivation that people were to unlock through their labor. This was the design from the beginning. In fact, it it appears that God meant for us to build society and to build culture. That's the point of work. And I'll quote extensively later uh, from this book, but uh, one book written to show that cities are one of the great blessings of mankind, that people are healthier in cities, that people thrive in cities compared to not being in cities, as much as there are bad things in cities. He's just talking about as a human invention, as a human production, it's amazing the benefit and blessings that cities have brought into the world. And yet some uh, not so uh, biblically minded people can say, yeah, you just got to get out of the city to find God. The Bible would not teach this. And you'll notice that in the final day, is it a wilderness that is brought down out of heaven or a city that is brought down out of heaven? It's a city. It's a society. It's a culture that God will have us live in as a glorious inheritance forever. That's the importance of this work of building society and culture. So we're to carry out this work of development. You'll notice in the first chapter, God names things. In the second chapter, man names things. That's that's important. Okay, you work like me, you follow me, you develop like me, you bring order like me, you bring understanding like me, you follow in my footsteps. 
and be like me and do like me. And so it's like the whole garden, if you could picture the whole earth as a garden, that we're bringing forth all of its possibilities for human flourishing, to meet human need, to bring goodness into our lives. That's our calling from God, to bring forth all the potentialities of this world. What a glorious calling. And so, as Keller says, it's rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. So, I'm interested in art and recently was hearing what a guy did to draw this one drawing. How many different pencils he uses and what particular kind of paper he uses and all these instruments. And I just figured he sat down and drew a a face, you know, (laughs) but... All in, and the expertise that was gained over years and how to work with all these delicate materials to produce this picture-perfect uh, face. You see, that's harnessing creation for beauty's sake, to encourage, to bless, to bring richness into people's lives, to harness the materials for a jet or a computer or a telescope or a bridge or a pacemaker or a lamp or a refrigerator These are God-like things. These are our calling under God to do these things. And when we do this, we are unfolding creation beyond what it was when we found it. We're following God's pattern of creative cultural development. Whether it's knee surgery or lawn care or child care, collecting, collecting art or collecting garbage... Our work, as Keller says, further develops, maintains, or repairs the fabric of the world. In this way, we connect our work with God's work. Can you imagine what would happen in your house if you didn't clean it? Some of you can. (laughs) Yes, I've seen the results of my not cleaning my house. But eventually, disease would set in, right? Disease would set in and, and the house itself would just begin to crumble without care. So every part, I, I, I'm amazed at how much God does just to clean up stuff in his world. He's like the ultimate janitorial service in, in the way, I mean, he's got so many animals devoted to that. And he knows how many billions of them he has and where they're operating and how it's going to happen. It's a massive cleanup project that God is engaged in. Every single thing we do is part of this cultivation and repairing and maintaining. And finally, just to talk about this, work as service. Work as service. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Paul, in trying to urge people not to go crazy with their newfound faith, they say, well, that means I need to change my job or I need to drop out. I need, And in some cases, in Corinth especially, people were just dropping out of everything, dropping out of their marriages, dropping out of work, all this kinds of stuff because the new age had broken in and they had wrong conclusions about this new age and the new people that we are and all this. So... He says there, let every person lead the life that God has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That is 
my rule in all the churches. Not that you can't change your job and all this, but it's, he's saying, look, you've been assigned something. God has called you to that. Interestingly, these are the same words that he uses when he says God has assigned gifts to the church and he's called you into fellowship with himself. So these spiritual words that are used within the church are used outside as well to say, hey, assignments in the church and gifts in the church, assignments and gifts out here as well. Calling that's within the church, calling here as well. God calls you. And when he calls you, when you call it a vocation, it means you're being called to something outside of yourself. You're being called to something not for yourself, it's for others. That's what a vocation is. And so he equips his people in the church and he equips and calls all people in the world for various kinds of work for the building up of human community. And just think about it. Where else could it come from but God? Where else could all the good that occurs in a given community come except from God in his common grace? And so, for each of us, of course, our our question is not what will make me the most money or bring me the most status, but how, with my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of the greatest service to other people, knowing what I do of God's will and what I know of human need? Luther, uh, always such a great writer on this subject, Uh, says this, It is pure invention that pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy. Never mince words, did he? Yet no one need be intimidated by it, and that for this reason, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. And there's no difference among them except that of office. We're all consecrated priests by baptism, as St. Peter says. You are royal priesthood and a priestly realm. And so, when you think of God, you pray for God to give him your daily bread... It's, you can't even think of all that it, it means to pray for that. You just think of John Deere. Just think of only John Deere. You ever thought of John Deere in regard to your daily bread? Just think of that company and what all has to happen to make that company work. All the parts places that supply the janitorial services for their factories, the specialized laborers there, the engineers. Think of all the fertilizer companies and the pest control companies, all that goes into growing the crop and harvesting the crop, transporting it to mills and companies, everything that helps to make those mills work. And then he brings it into the shells and all the people involved in the grocery business and the advertising, but it just goes on and on and on. It's like connected to how many millions of people for you to eat your breakfast. And you couldn't do any of this on your own. DeCoster talks about this. He said, uh, just talking about a chair, uh, he says... Think of the chair you're lounging in. Could you have made it for yourself? How would you say, get the wood for it? 
You're going to go and cut a tree down, but first you've got to make the tools for that, and then you've got to put together some kind of vehicle to haul the wood and constructing a mill to do the lumber and roads to drive on from place to place. In short, a lifetime or two to make one chair. (laughs) He goes on. You see, the point is that in all of these ways, God cares for you. All of these people are God's instruments for you and for one another. It's incredible to think of the richness of God's grace that's scattered around. And it is so important for us to understand it's not just like one lady who, who writes the foreword of this book talks about the many ways that people tr- tried to describe her when she was uh, a Christian and she worked in tech companies as a CEO of a uh, tech company and these things and trying to understand what does it mean to be a Christian at work. And she got everything from, well, I leave a Bible on my desk and I hope people will see it and maybe ask questions. Or, well, I just make a lot of money so that I can give to charities and all these different, I try to be honest in all of these ways. But one of the things missing is that you're supposed to be excellent at what you do. That is, they call it a ministry of competence. That's the way we love one another, is a ministry of competence. That we serve the human community to do a good job. This is our form of love. And it really comes home when William Deal recounts the story of United Airlines Flight 811 that took off from Honolulu uh, several decades ago. Headed for New Zealand at 22,000 feet, the cargo door busts open, tears a side of the plane off, pulls nine people to their death, and two engines go out. And the pilot's name was David Cronin, who was a Christian. And he brought all of his wisdom and 38 years of experience to bear to get that plane 100 miles from land down in the most fantastic, amazing way possible and actually had one of the softest landings that people had ever experienced in that plane. And Deal writes this, In those moments of peril, it mattered not to the passengers how Captain Cronin related to his co-workers, right? Was he gruff or kind or whatever? Not that that's not important. That didn't matter, did it? It's like a lot of surgeons, not our surgeon, I'm sure, but a lot of surgeons, they say have, uh, oh, I've experienced it, have terrible bedside manner, just terrible, you know. And you just think, I don't want to talk to the guy, but if he's great with his hands, it's fine, right? (laughs) I'm paying him not to talk to me or be nice. I'm paying for him to fix my body. He says also, they didn't care how he communicated his faith to others, did they, at that point? Boy, I just hope he... No. One thing only. The critical issue, was he competent enough as a pilot to bring that badly damaged plane to safety? The bedrock of our ministry has to be competency. In ministry, he's saying work, okay? The bedrock. And brothers and sisters, that's something that Christians of all people, of all people... In the glory of this, in, in the image of this God and for His glory and to manifest His glory, that we must give ourselves to that ministry of competence and to see the holy thing to do at your work. It's not so much, though it may happen, that you engage someone in a 
conversation about Jesus. But the first thing, and the thing that honors God, and that is like God, and therefore holy, is that you do your work well. Okay? It sets you free to give yourself fully uh, to work in this regard. And though we don't have time to talk much about it, but just to mention that in this way we can have a new appreciation for what unbelievers do in this world. It's not, not ever to say, well, that means they're worshiping God. Some of them hate God, but they can't help but bear His image. And they can't, can't help but manifest the grace of God because He gives His grace to all people. And as Keller points out, there's enough of sin in us that shows that we're never as good as what we confess. And there's so much good in them to show that God overcomes so much that they deny in His grace that's just scattered out in the world in such an amazing way in God's uh, gift of grace. And so I hope from this that you'll have a new sense of the dignity of your work, cultivating this world under God and in, in, in likeness to God, and the service that you are doing for others in everything that you do. Specific hand of God to love others. This is how God works. This is who God is and how He's made the human race. And in the midst of this, uh, we want to manifest in this particular way the glory of God as those who belong to God who alone understand all of these things. We've got a worldview to communicate. And if we communicate it from the standpoint of our excellence and our competency, believe me, people will Listen by God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to see that you're involved in every aspect of our lives. You are concerned about what we do, how we do our work, the products our companies produce, the customers that we serve, uh, the particular work that we do in all of its Uh, component parts. Lord, these are not wasteful things. These are not uh, ungodly things. These are not, quote, secular things. These are all things that have to do with your glory, that have to do with our being in your image and doing the things you've called us to do. May we have joy in our work. May we have a sense of your presence in our work. May we have this sense of your purpose in all of our work and all things that we see in this world. We thank you, Lord, that we we praise you that we're we're not uh, subject to the evil philosophies of this world that that have death as our friend that sets us free from uh, physical world. But Lord, so far from that, you're going to resurrect our bodies and you're going to restore this whole creation so that there will be, as it were, the roaring of waves and the laughter of people and the songs of birds forever and ever. However that form is going to look in the new creation, we don't know. But, but Lord, you will restore your creation. And we get to work in that creation. And our work has permanent validity and importance and glory because we are made in your image. Thank you, Lord. Call us to this work. Sustain us. Bless your holy name. Amen.